Thank you, worship team, for leading us in that prayer. Uh, it's really appropriate as we consider uh, today's passage. We're in John 15. I'm going to read verses 12 through 17. We're doing a series uh, called You Are, um, looking at the different statements that uh, Jesus or the Gospels or the Apostles uh, say uh, in, in description of us, like you are the light of the world. Um, you, uh, you, you are wrong sometimes. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're anxious uh, and you're valuable. Uh, those are some of the things that we've, we've looked at so far. And this morning we look at Jesus talking to the disciples. This is in the upper room. This is the, the very night that he's betrayed. And this is when he says very plainly and very clearly and reassuringly, uh, you're, you're my friends. You are my friends. So let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to look at verses 12 through 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide and so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And these things I command you so that you will love one another. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for loving us, for pursuing us, for choosing us. Thank you for befriending us. Thank you for Jesus, what a friend we have in him. His name we pray, amen. All right, please be seated. <clears throat> so uh, it's, it's not good for uh, anybody to be alone. Um, so we know that from the beginning of the Bible, uh, you know, Genesis, right out of the chute, God creates all things, and he makes Adam, and then he realizes, you know, Adam's got all the animals, he's got all creation, he's even got a relationship with God, but he knows that he's incomplete without an other, a complement to him. Uh, and so, you know, the reason why God gives us another, gives us an other, gives us friendship and fellowship is because God has friendship. Um, God, it's, not, it's not good for a man to be alone because God is not alone. And this is part of the mystery of the Trinity, uh, one God and three persons. God has never, ever been solitary. God has never, ever been alone. He's always existed in friendship and fellowship and love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as his image bearers, you know, that's his purpose for us, is that we would not be alone, that we would exist in friendship and fellowship. So consider that. God is not alone, but we are. <laughs> we feel lonely, we feel alone, we feel friendless, and, uh, and this is not God's uh, plan, this is not his will for us. So uh, there's an article by Scott Sauls, he's a pastor in Nashville, and I was uh, reading that and I thought this is really helpful, so I wanted to share uh, just a few sentences from, from uh, this article that he wrote. He says that if there were a competition for word of the year, uh, apparently that's a thing. Every year there's sort of the word of the year, and I think before it's been, word of the year has been uh, toxic, or word of the year has been uh, coronavirus, you know, things like that. Uh, so the word of the year in 2020, 
top contenders might include polarized, racialized, tribalized, politicized, divided, and outraged, just to name a few contenders, right? Sociologists and therapists alike are calling the climate that we are in the great resignation. The great resignation is an effort to escape regret and hurt and fear and other 2020-ish challenges uh, where alarming numbers of people have resigned. You know, this is the great resignation. Alarming numbers of people have resigned from their friendships, their communities, schools, jobs, cities, I'll I'll add churches, and even family members in hopes of hitting the the reset button on on life. It's great resignation. And our world just keeps shrinking. Our friend groups keep shrinking under this resignation. We live in an age where our allegiances are becoming more and more narrow uh, as we become kind of more and more intolerant of people who are different. We're more and more intolerant of the other. So we surround ourselves with people who share uh, our fundamental uh, views on, you know, any, all kinds of things, our fundamentalist views on masks, on vaccines, on COVID, and how to respond to it or not respond to it. We, we, we surround ourselves only with people who share our views on, you know, gun rights or gun control or on, uh, you know, various things like CRT or sexuality, like all of those hot button issues. We, we silence the other and we put ourselves in an echo chamber that just simply affirms ad nauseum what we think and what we, what we believe, and we don't listen. This is part of this cancel culture. It's part of the shrinking of our friend groups. This didn't happen overnight. Um, and, and so you look at this passage where Jesus is talking to the disciples, and he says, you're my friends if you do what I command you. And there's something a little bit off-putting about verse 14, if we're honest. Like, there's a condition attached to friendship with Jesus. You're my friends if you do what I command you. And we go, wait a minute. I thought Jesus' love was unconditional. What, what's going on with this conditional commandment? We'll talk about that. Just hit the pause button on, on Jesus' condition but don't get so offended by it because we do the same thing. We've got all kinds of conditions that we attach to our friendships. Um, We'll see in a second that Jesus's condition is actually a pretty good one. Ours are not so good. (laughs) Uh, You know, and we've taken Jesus's declaration of friendship and we've put our own sort of narrow conditions on it. And we say things like, you know, well, you are my friend if you share the same opinions that I do. And you are my friend if you vote like I do. And you are my friend if you act like I do, if you protest you know, what I do, if you hate what I do. And that's what defines you know, these narrow bands, these ever-shrinking bands of friends. So you know, there, there's, I'll throw a couple of labels at you. Which would you rather be? You know, and I know that you know, we, we have, uh, there, there are fuzzy edges to some of these, but when you think of like the word conservative or fundamentalist, you know, fundamentalist seems a little off-putting, conservative seems a little less off-putting, right? So um, the fun, word fundamentalist is interesting. It doesn't always have a negative connotation. 
In the early 20th century, to be a fundamentalist meant that you were part of a, a group, a, a group of traditions based, lots of denominations were saying, yeah, we need to come together on what ended up being five fundamental doctrines that they were saying, this is, this is fundamental to Christianity. If you're not, if you don't believe this, you know, you really can't say that you're, you're, you're adhering to what Jesus was teaching. So the five fundamentals as they were listed off were the virgin birth, the inerrancy of scripture, uh, Jesus' atoning sacrifice, his bodily resurrection, and the reality of miracles, you know. And so there was this whole movement within the church saying, yeah, we're coming back to that. We're kind of pushing against a progressive liberal movement that says, you know, like people were being ordained saying, I don't believe in the virgin birth or the bodily resurrection. You know, it's more kind of like poetical and sort of theoretical, you know, and they're going, no, this is, this is in the Bible. This is real. And so what happened though, was that these things that really do define Christianity um, that, that fundamentalism be, went from sort of these fundamental doctrines to a, a more of a personality and a caricature of, of people who just were extremely narrow, kind of mean, never smiled, and nobody wanted to be around, like fundamentalism. Very legalistic, very rule-bound, very, you know, joyless. And some of you came out of that tradition, and you're going, yeah, yeah this is not fun. Where's the fun in fundamentalism? Um, so that's happening all over the place though. I'm just using that as an example because more and more every group is taking on this sort of personality of the fundamentalist. Shrinking and, and boiling everything down to, well, if you don't share these things, you're not one of us. And it's happening in politics, it's happening in friendships, it's happening in, in the entertainment industry and so on. Everywhere you turn, Groups are shrinking because if you don't agree with us, you're not one of us. And, and so what's going on in our friends where we can't have anybody in our friend group that's not like us anymore? God did not intend for us to have homogeneous friendships, only homogeneous friendships. God's purpose for us is to be surrounded by people who are other, who are, you know, to have heterogeneous friendships. This is the whole point, you know, the very first friends that ever existed, Adam and Eve, were heterogeneous friends. They weren't like one another, they were the same, but they were different. And it's, um, you know, this is part of what others have called the friendship recession. Like, we are just lonely because we keep excluding people. We keep saying, you're not like me, so, you know, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. Um, and this has been studied, and, and we are a lonely, lonely group of people, uh, culturally, Americans. Uh, there's the Survey Center on American Life that just completed this very important study uh, this summer, uh, and they described this friendship recession, and they did this um, comparison between relationships now versus 30 years ago in like the 1990s. And 13% of people now, um, which, you know, it doesn't sound too bad, 13% have 10 or more friends. You go, that's all right, you know, good for them. They've got lots of friends good for that 13%. But 30 years ago, it was 30%. You know, it was, it was a lot more than, than, than who now have a large friend group. But, but only now when you think about, okay, maybe I don't have a bunch of friends, but how about just a, a, a best friend? How many people today have a best friend? I mean, you'd like to think it's a lot, but it's only 60, 
50% can, have, can, can name a best friend. And compare that to 30 years ago when it was more like, you know, 75% had a best friend. And then and this, this friendship recession is, um, is more pronounced among men, where 15% of men today have no, not even, they don't have a best friend, they have no close friends. 15% of the guys in this room probably would say, I don't have any close friends. This is why we do, you know, men's retreats, and that's why we get together. That's why women do women's retreats, and they're having one next month. So women, 10% of women, have no close friends. 30 years ago, you know, it was only like negligible, almost, almost within the margin of error. 30 years ago, almost everybody had a best friend or a close friend. And now nobody, I mean, there's, there's increasing people who have no close friends. It's like we're, we're struggling. I, I was, uh, on, and I, I love this image uh, from this morning. I was walking the dogs and, and I came across my neighbor's house and when I was on sabbatical, I took a, a several trips, and uh, I came back from visiting my uncle, and he was in Colorado, and I drove down to visit my daughter in Santa Fe, and then flew back. And I, so I was away for about a week and a half, and I'm, I come across my neighbor's house, and he's got this sign in the front yard that says, no trespassing. And I thought, that's really weird, because this guy talks to everybody. He is the, the neighborhood extrovert, and why is there a no trespassing sign in front of his yard? And I wondered, you know, had something happened? Did he get robbed or whatever? Well, the no trespassing sign is still there, but there's a new sign in front of his yard uh, since it's fall, and I think we've got the picture queued up. There's a nice little welcome sign <laughs> right next to the no trespassing sign. And I just thought, well, which is it? I'm confused, you know. On the one hand, he's saying, stay away. I don't want you on my property. And the other, come closer. Come, welcome. We'd love to have you over. Come and sit for a spell. You know, like, stay away and come closer. And this is what we're doing. Stay away if you're not like me, but I'm so lonely. Come closer. This is what's going on in our culture. This is what's going on in our churches. So there's nothing wrong, right, with homogeneous friend groups. There's nothing wrong with having your buddies and you've got some shared interests and you love to gather around people who love the same thing. That's why you love going to the concerts where everybody loves the same musician. And that's why you, it's fun to geek out with other Star Wars fans or Marvel fans or, or Jane Austen fans. But what if you never hang out with people who are other? Like what if you never avail yourself of the grace of God to you to give you somebody who is complementary to you, who's a little bit different, who's the same, but, you know, but not so much? Like, again, that first friendship was other, and God is other, and he designed us to have bifocal vision. Like, that's why we have two eyes, because we don't see as well if we're just looking through one eye. Like, sincerely, put your hand over one eye and look at your bulletin. Where's my bulletin? I don't have my bulletin up here. But look at your bulletin and, and with, with one hand over one eye and just, just read whatever's in front of you right now. Read that sentence to yourself and go, all right, well, I can kind of read it with one eye. And now look at it with two eyes and you go, hmm, I can actually read a lot clearer. There's an intentionality behind having sort of two eyes that are the same, but they're looking at it from different perspectives. 
and you see clearer, we see better, we see with more wisdom. This is why Proverbs 18, verse 2, says that, look, it's a, a fool is, is one who takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. It's foolish, right, to say, I, I don't need to hear your point of view. I don't need to understand where you're coming from. The only thing that's important is what I think. That's foolishness. But the corollary is that wisdom pauses to go, all right, well, tell me what you see. Let me see it from your perspective, and let me try that on for size. And, you know, test it out. Test it for truth. Test it for wisdom. That's wise. Then later on in Proverbs 18, verse 17, the one who states his case first seems right, until the other comes and examines him and adds sort of that bifocal vision, lends another perspective, an other perspective that will bless us. That's God's design to increase our wisdom, to help us walk with more humility, to you know, sound off a little less often and listen up a little more often, that kind of stuff, right? So I, I, I kind of would label all of that talk about the friendship procession and becoming more fundamentalist and all the homogeneous, you know, shrinkage of our, of our friend groups. That's fundamentalist friendship as opposed to the fundamentals of friendship. Like one's more of an attitude, the other's a reality, like what God's intending for us. The fundamentals of friendship we see in verse, verse 14, you're my friends. If you do what I command you, well, what's What's the condition? Here's Jesus' condition. He's talking to us about what's at the core of true friendship. If we're going to be friends, we should learn from Jesus, right? He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Well, back up in verse 12, he told us what the commandment was. He said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So if you put those two verses together, basically what Jesus is telling us is that you are my friends if you love one another as I have loved you. And so there we see that the, at the fundamental of friendship is love, loving the other. Uh, and, you know, Jesus goes on and he says in verse 13 that greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so now you kind of pack verses 12, 13, and 14 together and you get something like this, like you are my friends if you love one another as I have loved you, you are my friends. If you lay down your life for your friends, that kind of love, to lay down your life, to set apart your life. And, and as beautiful and as, and as true as that is, and, and we even see examples of people with that kind of sacrificial love where they literally lay down their life for their friend. We, you, and reading the news about people who make that ultimate sacrifice. And it's noble, and it's inspiring, and it can be heartbreaking, because that's the end of the friendship, by the way, isn't it? But if we're not careful, we'll end up narrowing the scope of verse 13 to such that it actually doesn't really apply to, to us very, very much. You know, it might apply. I mean, it, there may come a day when for any of us in this room 
where there's that, you know, that bus coming and your friend's right there and you've got to like push him or her out of the way and you sacrifice yourself. You take the bus or you take the bullet to save the life of your friend. That day might come for, for one of us, maybe. I, I don't even know. Maybe none of us. And if that day never comes, do we ever get to, like, does verse 13 mean anything to us? Well, it does, because what's important, is, as, as good as, and, and as memorable, right? Like, even if, you've, even if this is your first time in church, or if you're not familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard this, this verse before. Greater love is no one than this, than someone laid out his life for his friends. It's, it's beautiful. But it can actually help us miss the point because what it, doesn't, you know, what it doesn't immediately show us is that to lay down your life is to set apart your life. Jesus is using the same word here as he does down in verse 16. So look at verse 16 with me, where Jesus says that you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that word appointed is the same word as lay down. It's set apart. That's the core. That's the, the, the root of that word is to set apart. So Jesus chose us and he set us apart that we would go and bear fruit. And Jesus is saying that no one has any greater love than this, that they would set apart his life for his friends. Now it certainly means to lay down your life. That's one application, but it's not the only application. So what's at the, the core of true friendship? What's fundamental friendship? It's dying to self. It's not one day, maybe, dying the martyr's death in this noble and heroic act of friendship. It's every day. Dying to self in order to bless your friend. It's dying to self to help your friend have life, to experience life to experience blessing, to promote their goodness, and to, to make the sacrifices that are going to put them forward. So this is why we have such a friend in Jesus. He's not asking us to do anything he hasn't done for us. So when you think about the friends of Jesus, when he's in this upper room and he's surrounded by the disciples, and he's calling them his friends, who is he surrounded by? Matthew is one of them, and Matthew wrote one of the Gospels. We're in John's Gospel now, but if you were in Matthew's Gospel, look at chapter 10, and Matthew gives us a rundown of who the disciples are. When Jesus called the 12 to him, he gave them authority over demons, and he gives them the power to heal, and he sends them out. And the names of the 12 apostles are these, and here's the list. Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, he's talking about himself there, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So what's interesting is that Matthew doesn't just run down a list, you know, here's the, the, the list of the 12. He gives us a little commentary along the way, like, oh, this is who this guy is and who's this guy is, and who are these guys? Well, there's, you know, Simon, whose nickname is Peter, the rock, you know. He's, 
He's the guy, he's the one we go to, and he's a bit impulsive, and he can be brusque, and he's, you know, talks first and thinks later, and, you know, all that stuff, but we love him, and he's at the core, you know, and so there's Peter, and then you've got Simon, named, you know, his nickname is the Zealot, which means that he was a part of a, a, a political faction uh, who was very anti-Rome. It's interesting that, you know, Matthew mentions Simon was a zealot because Matthew talks about himself and says, oh yeah, by the way, I'm the tax collector. I worked for Rome. I collected taxes for this empire of which Simon was a part of a group that's trying to overthrow it, you know? Think about some political differences that are represented among the disciples. Then you've got Judas, the betrayer, who Jesus knows, knows his heart, he knows what's up, and still Jesus doesn't write him off, instead he washes his feet. And sort of this mystery of like Jesus knows everything, but there's still this choice that Judas has. Judas, don't do this. I'm washing you. You can, you can embrace this, this clean thing or you can do what you've got to do. And then you've got Paul, this you know, apostle come lately. Paul's a Pharisee. He's not just a Pharisee. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's a, he's a dyed-in-the-wool legalist, wool abider, strict, authoritarian guy. And he's mixing it up now you know, among these disciples who have all kinds of other, you know, backgrounds and so on. This is the group of friends that Jesus surrounds himself with. This is why, as Paul's reflecting on the, what the gospel does and what Jesus' purpose was in gathering these, these people together and establishing his kingdom through them and in them, Paul in Ephesians 2 says that Jesus himself is our peace. And he's made us both one and he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in the one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is incredibly good news to us. Because Jesus loves, let's just use, you know, love, we're so accustomed to hearing how Jesus loves us. I'm going to use the word like. Jesus likes all kinds of people. Jesus likes all different backgrounds and, you know, people from all kinds of different perspectives. And this is really good news because this, what this means is that Jesus, there's a good chance, right, given all the different kinds of people that he surrounds himself, there's a really good chance that he likes you too. Did you know that? Given where you come from and your likes and your dislikes, there's a really good chance that he might say, you know, yeah, let's hang out. I want to spend some time with you too. Because let's just think about what could have happened. If Jesus' disciples weren't sort of heterogeneous, if they were all homogeneous, if they were all like Peter, if they were all like Paul, or if they were all like Matthew, then what hope would you have if you're not like those people? If all the disciples were like Paul, you know, strict, 
rule abider, Pharisee, legalistic type, and you're kind of the progressive type, you're kind of the edgy type, you're lost. Or what if everybody around Jesus was like Simon the Zealot, you know, just fanatical and kind of crazy and wild-eyed, and you're kind of introverted, and you kind of hang back, like, what hope would you have? The disciples were all the same. You might wonder, would Jesus accept me? Would he want to be my friend? The answer, the answer is yes. In Exodus 33, we hear about Moses. And he's you know, in the tabernacle and the pillar of clouds there, and it's just this powerful you know, demonstration of the Lord's presence, and the Lord would speak to Moses and Moses would meet with God face to face as a man speaks with his friend. So as Jesus is surrounding himself with these disciples, as he's showing them these are the fundamentals of friendship, we have to ask ourselves, like, well, so was Jesus just showing us how to do friendship or was he doing something more? So in order to wrap up, I want to talk about the faith of friendship and the fruit of friendship because, look, if all Jesus was doing was showing us how to love our friends and how to like people, how to expand our friend group and have more heterogeneous friendships, then great, we've got this good example, but no ability to do it whatsoever. All we've got is the example of somebody who's really good at being friends and actually makes me feel kind of bad about the way that I'm, I'm not that good of a friend. But that's not what he was doing. He wasn't just giving us a model for how we should love. What he was doing is he was loving us in particular. He loved us by dying for us. He loved us by being an atoning sacrifice for us. And this is why this is the faith of friendship. It's to know that Jesus had a purpose for how he was loving us and the way that he demonstrated his friendship was to redeem us, to forgive us, to, to move us from one condition to another, not to just show us how to do it, but to act upon us, to change us, uh, to save us. So, you know, for instance, John writes this gospel He's recording this whole episode in the upper room about Jesus saying, you are my friends. And then later on, he writes letters to different churches, and he's reflecting on the power of this, and he says in 1 John 4, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Those are you know, $5 church words, what that means is that this was God's way to forgive our sins and to restore friendship with us, to reconcile us to himself. And he did it in a way that's really quite unimaginable. Our sin, uh, inevitably, as we shrink our friend groups because we're so, you know, sort of judgmental and we're always hitting the the cancel button because you're not like me and you don't share my opinions and I know what's best and so on. Like we, we have this sort of looking down our noses at those that aren't like us. And what that inevitably does is it just sort of keeps shrinking and shrinking until we're alone. And our sin keeps doing that to us. And it keeps isolating us until the ultimate isolation happens where our sin isolates us forever, alone, forever. 
without friends and without God, that's hell. And more and more people all around us, hell is encroaching. We're alienating, we're isolating, and that's not good. And what Jesus did to reverse that, he took our, our alienation and our isolation on himself. When he's on the cross, when he's just crying out abjectly like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He endured that for us us so that our sins could be forgiven and then God would not reject us. He would not forsake us. In fact, he would endear himself to us and love us. And, um, you know, our, our friend Ruth Graham just finished writing a book. Uh, I want to commend it to you, Transforming Loneliness. And I'm, I'm going to quote from her. I'm going to plagiarize a little bit from Ruth. Is that okay? Okay. Uh, so No, it's not plagiarism because I'm quoting her. There you go. So I, I really appreciated her, her meditation on this. She goes, how lonely must Jesus have been when arrested by rough soldiers with swords and clubs and led away to the high priest? How deep was his loneliness as he endured so many people falsely accusing him? What was it like to stand alone in the face of the crowd condemning him? The moment had come. It was a moment unlike any other he had experienced in all eternity. The second person of the Godhead, the Son who had existed in friendship and fellowship with the Father and the Spirit forever, now it was utter loneliness. As the sin of the world bore down on his broken body, Jesus endured the ultimate loneliness, separation from God. He descended into hell. And on the third day, rose again to be our friend, to make you his friend. And you have to believe that. This is the faith of friendship. This is what he did. This is what he accomplished. We put our faith in him as our substitute sin bearer who would take our sins away to befriend us. This is why James says, you see that faith was active along with works. Faith was completed by works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God because he believed that God declared him righteous. We believe that God declares us righteous through Jesus. And he says we're his friends now. And lastly, this just leads to the fruit. You know, you can't believe he's your friend without that changing you and, and affecting you, without the love of Jesus shaping you and remaking you. And so Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you or set you apart, right? That you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit would abide. So he chose you. Like he pursued you. He's intentional in his friendship with you. Like we are all waiting around for the invite, right? Well, Jesus pursues you. He's welcoming you. He's inviting you. And his pursuit of us has this purpose. He wants our, our friendship to bear the fruit of love. Like I love how Paul talks about 
his approach to friendship in light of how Jesus has loved him, you know, this Pharisee, this rule keeper, and loved him and befriended him. Paul then goes and tells the Corinthians, look, you know, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. And to the, the Jews, I became like a Jew. And to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. And to the weak, I became weak. And I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Then I might befriend them and show them the friendship of Jesus. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. He's not saying he's becoming a chameleon. He's just being a Christian. He's being like Jesus who came to be like us, to befriend us, the other. So um, I appreciated this quote that I read in uh, one of the books I was looking through this summer. Um, A guy named Dick Staub said that taking Jesus into our world requires fully engaging both our faith and the world, yet few of us have really learned how to fully integrate our faith and our life in the world. And the result is that paradoxically, those who embark on this path, who can integrate both, and who can love the other and not compromise their convictions and not bend and become this chameleon, but instead, just like Christ did with his disciples, paradoxically, those who embark on this path will end up seeming both too Christian for their pagan friends and too pagan for their Christian friends. You can't put them in a box. Who are you? And Jesus would say, he's, he's our friend. So are you, are you isolating? Are, are you canceling? Are you, know, are you hating? Jesus is calling us to love the way that he loves us, to love the people around us the way he, he loves us. Is there any group of people on this planet that should that should get friendship more than the church. It doesn't mean that we're going to become you know, better friends because we're better people. But we have the friendship of Jesus to help us to love the other, to forgive the other, to ask for forgiveness, and to walk in that kind of love. Let's continue to ask him for grace to do that. All right, Jesus, we are um, <laughs> amazed to be called your friends. Uh, that is shocking. Uh, that you would come and love us and like us and be with us who are so different from you. And we pray that your love for us, uh, your friendship with us would help us to learn how to love and befriend others. Help us to listen and grow and, and, and become uh, better at, uh, at, at being friends and help uh, people understand better your friendship with us and, and help them see and understand the gospel better and more clearly as we can learn how to share with them how you have loved us. Lord, would you help any here who are just really lonely? Would you not only show them more of your friendship, but would your friendship help them in their friendships? And for those who who have praise and thanksgiving in their hearts for the friendships that you have given them, uh, Lord, help them to multiply. Lord, help your church to be a witness to this world. To, to show us, to show the world how to love the other. We pray in Jesus' name.